The wheel of time turns and ages come and pass, leaving memories that become legend. Legend fades to myth and even myth is long forgotten when the age that gave it birth comes again. Welcome to Through the Glass Columns, a Wheel of Time read-along podcast. Each week, we will be reading, discussing, and digesting a small selection from Robert Jordan's fantasy opus. This quest is led by Tyler, a true Wheel of Time warrior. I have all stories, ages that were and that will be. And I'll be joined by Greg, a complete novice to the Wheel of Time. The Wheel of Time and the Wheel of a Man's Life turn alike without pity or mercy. Join us each week as we read the Wheel of Time in our own sweet time, traveling deeper and deeper through the glass columns. But what does that even mean? No, 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 no. no. You don't get to find out yet. (laughs) Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Through the Glass Columns, your weekly Wheel of Time read-along podcast. Except for this week, when it is not weekly, it is... (laughs) twice weekly i was about to say bi-weekly but i think that means the opposite greg is now giving me a look like i either do or do not know what that word means and that is how i am going to toss to greg how are you doing on this fine podcast the the look was like wow is tyler drunk at this time uh (laughs) it's really a, a little early dude uh i am great i am uh spending the second night in a row podcasting because i was moonlighting last night and i will just say uh my basement was not made for winter podcasting um um it was us last week where i like shivered and and bundled up close and you thought i was annoyed with you i'm like no i'm just cold so <laughs> but i am so excited what an exciting uh episode to record and and i am glad that we're getting both of these out right before the holiday uh so you know uh in my household it's a sore subject that everything runs on an academic calendar but that has infected the podcast because we are too academic so it definitely feels like the end of the year everything's coming together um and not to be totally cheesy but one of my uh kind of silly christmas favorites to watch is uh the community episode on uh for christmas and one of the things they they actually sing but i'm not going to do that to our listeners is they talk about you know in the darkest time of year like whatever holiday you celebrate it's just about finding light and each other when the weather is at its worst i mean it's a little north hemisphere biased but uh when when you know the darkest time of year we find light and hope and and so you know i think it may be cheesy but let's celebrate our podcast which has brought us together has brought uh our listeners into the fold or 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 maybe just the one but uh however many listeners we have we're grateful for um and it's been a really fun year it's crazy to think about that it was about 6 months as it ends up being right yeah, I was actually looking forward. I think this book and the next book ended up being exactly 25 or 26 weeks. So it mm-hmm. works out pretty nicely for six months for a book. And I was going to do this towards the end of the episode rather than the beginning, but <laughs> I had the same thought. This has been just a really spectacular six months. And whatever time of year you're listening to this is a wonderful time of year to celebrate something like that. So finishing mm-hmm. a book, uh, I'm super excited you're still on board for a second season because that was my big word. <laughs> getting you to sign on. Um, So I am thrilled to be celebrating uh, the advent of the podcast. I don't know what that word means. It's advent in the Christian calendar. So we'll go with it. (laughs) Uh, 
I say, unless you have anything else to discuss, we dive straight into an ill-advised discussion of visual media, which, of course, is our gift to you for whatever holiday <laughs> you celebrate. Um, so this week, we are going to be discussing a symbol that appears at the beginning of Chapter 53, but you probably best recognize it as the symbol that appears at the end of basically every chapter that doesn't reach the bottom of the page. So this is uh, two images kind of interlaced between each other. There is a snake eating its own tail in the shape of an infinity symbol, and that snake is wrapped around what appears to be either a wagon wheel I've heard it described as, or I like to think of it as a spinning wheel to keep in the weaving metaphor, um, and that wheel has seven spokes. And so um, this is often taken to be an image that depicts the wheel of time or some representation of the idea of the wheel or of time. Um, so with just that little bit of preface, I'd love to hear your reaction to the image, and then we can dive into kind of what it's used for and the usual kind of symbology in world that we do. If I'm not mistaken, this image is familiar to me from the last time you went swimming with me. That is <laughs> accurate, recall, yes. right? This is this is the Tyler tattoo, right? It is it in its entirety or is this just a portion of the tattoo yeah so this is the bottom symbol in a i don't know what i know a triptych is three what's a, a quadric Ooh, i don't know Something i was hoping like you were that. gonna say two so i could say diptych because no. that's the only other one i knew no but you there, way. <laughs> there are four images and this is actually the one i was wondering whether you would recognize it it is the only one of the four images on my tattoo that typically goes below a t-shirt sleeve so mm. this is definitely the recognizable one i know uh, i and, lied i don't think you've ever been swimming with me <laughs> <so>. <laughs> yeah we've only ever been swimming near lakes and i do not do cold water period <laughs> um but what are your thoughts on the image other than the fact that it is emblazoned on my arm um you know it certainly feels like um maybe it's it's my bias knowing it's your tattoo but it feels like this is the like skeleton key or maybe the better metaphor is the keystone like this is the central image of this um i want to say some of the art for the show also hinted at it yeah. i know uh my mass market paperback has a like a uh, portion of it like it's clearly a zoomed in version of that Oh, and it's on the back of your trade paperback. Oh, yeah, you have the fancy trade paperback. Um, and it's actually even more prominent on the cover of uh, The Great Hunt, which uh, we will be beginning shortly. Um, so, so it does feel like this is kind of central to the mythology and to the world. The other thing I would say when I look at it, I see motion even though it's completely still, but my mind is naturally like, okay, if we spin the wheel, can the wheel push the the snake and will it drive the snake to kind of break or will it kind of, yeah, make a, a loop and a pattern? And it's kind of uh, a fun kind of mind experiment of how that would all function, like a children's toy with gears or something that you turn the crank. And there's something really wonderful about picturing how you could get perpetual motion out of a snake shaped like an infinity symbol. So I think this metaphor just works. Um, I will mention, while we're kind of on the subject of kind of like motion and the symbology here, um, two quick things about the snake eating its own tail. 
number one out of world this is a symbol that appears in a lot of eastern religions and um, metaphors and discussions about time and eternity um, Ouroboros I think is the approximate white person pronunciation of that concept translated from many different languages um, this is a symbol that I think Robert Jordan is borrowing in the same way that we've talked about him using a lot of eastern iconography in terms of weapons and um, you know construction of buildings things like that um, the other thing I will mention is that we have actually seen the snake eating its own tail in world um moraine and also elida both of whom are Aes Sedai, wore rings that are silver snakes eating their mm. own tails and that actually you mentioned the symbology um of the television show that actually kind of is much more reminiscent i think of the image of the ring mm. as most people picture it in the book interestingly that's not what the ring looks like on the show but mm. um that is definitely kind of two things i wanted to bring in while we continue to discuss the image um anything else Let's jump to your mind um we've kind of talked the snake anything about the the wheel uh i hadn't noticed till you said it seven spokes which is not how you would really build a wheel <laughs> um i don't think I'm, I'm not really a wheel maker but i did grow up on a farm so uh i don't recall a seven spoked wheel it seems like you do an even number so you get an actual diameter instead of radii um and then the second observation I'll give is it just is very dark. We've talked before about how, yeah. you know, there's some light detail work around both the edge of the snake and the wheel, but maybe it's just poor printing. But most of the times it appears in my book, that's barely visible. And it's mostly looks like three completely dark rings. Uh, no, and that is it is certainly more pronounced in some editions of the book than others and i think you're right it does vary just based on some books get a heavier you know print and some get a little lighter um but i will say in every edition of the book i've ever owned or seen this is a very very dark symbol sometimes to the point of it being difficult to discern the detail in the symbol so i think this is deliberate and that's interesting for a symbol that as i was saying kind of is often read to be the wheel of time itself, right? That feels like something if we were putting it in our light, dark dynamic, we'd expect to be at least neutral or probably we would hope kind of a positive symbol. And so all black is an interesting place for this to be. Um, maybe it's telling of the the time period that our, our tale is set in, but uh, something is dark about time according to this symbology. I think you may be muted, Greg. Uh, I said so many brilliant things. Uh, I, I did mute to take a drink of water. Um, we've said so often we've talked about the black and white cookie, and that is entirely about balance. And so while the kind of shape of the circles kind of introduces light within the shape, this just appears to be a very dark image, uh, especially with that in mind. So, um, And I think that means it is more related to the side din the dean dean yep dean than the sidar um which is also uh important given the revelations that are about to come out of your summary uh, yeah, that's a pretty good transition to what I think for me when I first read this, I recall being an exceptionally jarring chapter. I was expecting what happened to Rand to be the mystery of the next book. And uh, in this chapter, we begin with Rand. He slowly awakens and 
he doesn't have much of a memory of anything. I think he even one of the first things that we read is him remembering what his own name is. And very quickly, he realizes that he can see uh, kind of charred remains on the ground. He quickly realizes these are Agenor. And then um, he realizes he kind of decides uh, Beelzeman must have been burned up in the same way. Um, and then he remembers the name Egwene and runs off trying to find her. Um, eventually, he does and he finds Egwene, Nynaeve, and Moraine. Uh, Moraine looking fairly injured. She's in, you know, a, a travoy of some kind and seems to be kind of resting. Um, and when she arrives, um, first Rand magically remembers everything. Suddenly that plot device <laughs> goes away very quickly. Um, and then the revelation comes very quickly. Everyone seems to take it for a fact that Rand channeled. And uh, when Rand asks who knows, uh, Moraine says that everyone there, obviously all of the women do. And Moraine says that she also told Lan, but notably Loyal, Perrin, and Matt all do not know uh, that Rand is able to channel. Um, Rand um, kind of says that he will never channel again. And then Moraine explains how she knew Rand could channel and in fact explains Explains that this is likely not the first time that she that he has channeled. She um, discusses the first time that they were running away from the two rivers and all of the horses were tired except for Bella. And she assumed that that was because either Rand or one of the other boys must have washed away Bella's tiredness. Um, and she also... Um, she doesn't mention this, but I think this also resolves the lightning uh, question that we had about halfway through the book. Mm -hmm. um, finally, we learn that the eye of the world has been used up during this conflict. So there is no longer any kind of condensed sidine. Um, however, there were objects that were buried underneath the eye of the world. And so Loyal and the other boys bring it up. Um, initially, we get what I think is a really wonderful scene of uh, Rand appreciating land for or not mentioning anything about him being able to channel or behaving any differently. And then we learn what the objects inside of the eye were. Um, they were first uh, a series of what appear to be almost pottery fragments, but Moraine explains that they are actually the seal to the Dark One's prison, that it should be impossible to break. There is a flag which displays a dragon and is said to be the banner of Luz there in the dragon. And perhaps most importantly, there is a horn, uh, which is said to be the horn of Valir, destined to bring the dead heroes back to fight on the side of the light. Um, and at this, they decide they need to get out of here. The blade is encroaching and they decide to rest for the night. Um, and that is where we leave the end of the chapter. So like I said at the beginning, this was an interesting chapter for me because I expected what happened to Rand to be kind of a mystery that would be dragged out. I'm curious whether you had the same reaction and whether the abrupt explanation of what happened um, seemed like an effective move for you or whether you were kind of surprised and let down by it a little bit. Um, so thank you for the summary. It did jog my memory because I did, I was saying before we started recording, like, oh no, I read this a really long time ago because I read it immediately after we, we stopped recording last week. Um, and I, you know, what really 
kind of permeated this chapter for me is this feeling of Rand as kind of alien or altered that, uh, as you noted in your summary, he kind of like can't recall anything. And then he remembers the name of Gwen, and he kind of all comes back. But I couldn't help but feel like in kind of classic sci-fi fantasy, it's like, oh, this isn't Rand. Like there's something changed about Rand or something yeah. different about Rand. Um and so to me, I think where my mind went, and this is maybe crossing from interpretation to, to irresponsible speculation, um, it felt much like, oh, this is an older version of this entity, right? This is somebody who uh, has been through the kind of deep time version of this and now uh, is learning about the current world like our Rand has been learning about the past world. And so you're you're right when you say that kind of, falters as the chapter goes on it kind of merges more and more um but it really felt to me like oh something is deeply changed about rand so all that is to say i still left this chapter being like that's going to be what the next book is about the change in rand that we haven't really been able to determine yet is is where my mind landed yeah, and that's really interesting in light of the fact that a lot of the other characters are now also seeing him in a new light, but in a very different way, right? We have kind of throughout this book had the, you know, either slow dawning or very quick realization of how special Rand is relative to the other people he's traveling with. And so I think it's interesting that we are getting kind of a new mystery about Rand at the same time that all of the other characters are solving the mystery that we're kind of like, yeah, yeah, okay, channeling explains that gives it a name, <laughs> but we knew what was happening here, right? Um, so I think that is is a really effective move for Robert Jordan. Um, since we're at the beginning of the chapter with kind of Rand's memory lapse and what have you, I just needed to bring this up. I'm curious, what are your thoughts on the fate of Agenor and or Baelzaman. Do you buy that they are dead? Do you think <laughs> of charred remains as seeing the body or is that not enough for you? Where are you at with those characters? Uh, definitely. I'll take the easier one first. Baelzaman, no way. Still around, still fine. Uh, I, I go back to my reading of the last chapter was it was happening on a plane that was not existence, but it was not not existence. So I feel like he is wounded he has faced a large setback from that com confrontation i almost said conversation but it was a little more than a conversation <laughs> um and so i don't i don't think there's a chance especially i mean you asked you said the see the body like we didn't see a body like yeah. he's he's not there and and uh you know agonor is a tougher call um because we did see the body he is there he's charred i think he needs to be in that state so that everybody understands Rand's powers, but um, it seems like he could bounce back, meaning his essence is somewhere else or, or you know, kind of like um, the mountain in Game of Thrones. Like, yeah. you got a cool villain where we got to keep them around. We got to keep them here. Absolutely. Uh, I, th I think that's all that I had at the beginning section of this chapter, right? Rand suddenly forgets a lot of things and then sees a dead body and then runs to meet the ladies. Uh, was there anything else there or did you have any particular thoughts about the revelation that the girls now know that something is different about Rand? I think that's the next logical place. I mean, I have just a quick note that the creator came up again, which I was really yeah. intrigued when when the green man mentioned him. So I don't.
really have anything else to say about that other than okay the creator is that idea is being kept in the mix um as as we continue uh forward um yeah that's all that's in my notes for the beginning of the chapter so moving on yeah so i guess my question for you then is what was your reaction to both nynaeve and Egwene and how they responded to knowing rand could channel right because we get the first interaction between those characters and i think it's clear that both of them are conflicted but trying to be open um but in kind of different ways from one another. I didn't know whether that scene played well for you or or what you thought kind of worked well or didn't in that sequence. Uh, my mind was primarily on, um, it wasn't, I, I can't recall if it was last week or the week before, but uh, Egwene like setting up her plans for how they're yeah. all going to go to like, we're all going to go to colleges in the same city. We'll all be there together. And it's like, no, you're not. You're, you're all going to stop talking after high school graduation. Um, I think this was high school graduation in that twisted metaphor, yeah. right? That she can see now that their paths are not aligned. And I think you're, you're right. Wants to be supportive, wants to be glad for Rand, but, recognizes the loss that is inherent to what has happened to him. Nynaeve, I didn't have much of a read on at all. Uh, you know, I think my heart is with the the kids and wanting, wanting them to find a way, even though they can't, uh, according to the prophecy. So I was much more emotionally invested in that. Uh, and Nynaeve didn't register as much. So how did you feel about Nynaeve? Yeah, I think Nynaeve is a trickier read in part because I think Robert Jordan is doing his first person thing where all that Rand literally remembered when he forgot the world was Egwene. So he's not paying enough attention to Nynaeve for us to get much more than her dialogue in the scene. Um, but I think she's kind of doing her her wisdom thing, right? She seems kind of very like authoritative, like I understand we are willing to work with you on this. It feels very um, kind of acting the position more than kind of letting her personality out. And that's something mm -hmm. she does sometimes that I think is interesting. Um, with Egwene, I think for me, part of it is just, it's the writing being so beautiful. I think there's a mm -hmm. moment in this sequence where um, it's really well done, where Rand asks Egwene whether they're going to be okay. And Egwene says, of course. And then there's like a little aside of Rand's in italics that is like, he'd never forget that she didn't hesitate or something like that. Mm -hmm. And it was just, it was mm -hmm. gorgeously written. Yeah. And so I, I think uh, Robert Jordan is more interested in the Rand-Egwene relationship in this moment. And, and I think it sings more as a result of that. So that's what we remember. Yeah. I, I don't know how much we want to engage with my irresponsible speculation moving forward, but it, it certainly, you know, the vibe I get from that, which I've been wrong on just about all the vibes at any time, but it really feels like they're going their separate ways here and it, they'll see each other again. But I feel like they're going to, it's going to be like three books from now or something like that. Like they're going to do a lot of growing and changing and it will end up being, you know, the hobbits reunited in Rivendell or, or where I guess they're in Minas Tirith, wherever. Yeah. Um, so something like that, where they're going to really have separate paths and then um, they will get to meet again, but, but not kind of in the way the rom-com readers would want. <laughs> Yeah, and I guess if what we're thinking about now is kind of where do things go forward, I think the best place to kind of jump off of that is we now have three brand new items in the story that might give us some hints about what is kind of going ahead for the characters, right? What's coming next. So 
we have three. We could do them in the book order, but I very much prefer to do them in Greg's interest order. Uh, is there one <laughs> of these three items that immediately jumped out at you as like, this is the one that I really want to see what happens in the next book? Or was it just kind of like there's a you know bunch of things, they all are kind of equally ringing the buzzer? Uh, so ranking from most interesting to least interest, I would go Horn Banner rocks and the rocks i actually had to read like two or three times before i got it i'm like what is this like so yeah. uh but but grabbing the horn i think that's the one that stood out is this is where the book is going because there is a horn involved in the great hunt that is correct the name of the song that tom has sung a few times in yeah. the, this book is called the great hunt for the horn so the fact that the next book is called the great hunt good foreshadowing excellent work yeah and, and we know that that happens on the very different part of the continent as i recall yeah it's far in the south yeah it's associated with the Ilian, and i think in the next chapter actually moraine insists that the horn must make it to Ilian, which as you said is exactly right it's in the south kind of central portion of the continent so yeah. about as far from where we are as you can possibly get uh so so that felt mostly like foreshadowing to me which again we you had joked a couple uh weeks ago i think about how um like in all these prestige shows like like game of thrones the ninth episode is where things really happen and then yeah. the 10th is like yeah we just gotta settle a couple things and and set up next season and this week definitely felt like that kind of 10th episode yeah so uh that felt like that to me but i was very intrigued by that it can call the heroes from the dead because so much of Baalzaman, uh kind of braggadociousness has come from him being like, well, you can die and I can still control you. And so it really made me wonder, okay, is this a different kind of calling on the dead? Is it, you know, spirits versus zombies or something? Um, or is it very much, you know, a, a one of those kind of darker powers? Um, I think I... I leaned immediately towards images of like Aragorn with the army of the dead. He calls um, instead of like um, anytime Baalzaman is mentioned, I thought much more about like zombies and reanimated dead people. Yeah. And I think the only hint that we've gotten remotely at this is the uh, stories and songs that we've kind of overheard Tom telling at various inns earlier on. And one of the things that we learned is that Tom tells the great hunt for the horn almost every night but it's different every night because there are just dozens and dozens or maybe even hundreds of heroes of the horn who at one point or another went searching for the horn and became legendary as a result of it. So tying that into kind of this question of kind of what does it mean to bring back the dead heroes? What does that look like for the dark versus the light? We've also got this idea, the horn doesn't just say it will bring back the dead, it brings back the heroes, right? And mm -hmm. so the fact that this story around the horn is tied to all of of these great legends of the past, I think is, is kind of fitting with what you're saying with the Aragorn imagery, right? Because that's not mm -hmm. just, you know, a bunch of random dead guys. It's, you know, the ancient kingdom that owes a debt to whatever there's, you know, the story tied into that. And that feels yeah. kind of like what we're getting here. Well, and, and in that regard, it is also heroes, not an army. So I picture singular figures. Um, you know, it has been clear over the course of this book that Robert Jordan isn't interested in showing you giant army smashing into giant army. Um, so what is it? You know, it could also be in my mind something like um, the the one of the Deathly Hallows, the, the stone in uh, in the la end of Harry Potter. I forget what the stone is called. 
I don't remember. But that, you know, brings back the dead so he can talk to them as ghosts. And it's more about counsel than actual fighting. And so maybe we're not seeing like call back the dead to fight. No, no, just call back the ancient heroes to to be able to give you wisdom and counsel and so on. Um, So perhaps. (laughs) Well, and I think it's very interesting in a a chap or a book that ends, you know, we're 10 pages away from the end of the book with the last word, I believe being reborn. I think it's interesting Mm -hmm. to be thinking about the role of time and ancient heroes, both as they're tied to the horn and also as they're potentially tied to at least one of our main characters, right? If we're thinking about rebirth as being central to this story, that potentially happens in various ways in, in this mythology, which I think is really interesting. Um, unless you had any other last thoughts about the horn, um, let's go to number two on your list. Um, what did you have to say about the banner of the dragon? Uh, so a very familiar name, right? Luz Theron Telamon, which we've heard quite a few times. Fill in where we've heard it. <laughs> uh, yes, he was actually the POV character in the mm. original uh, prologue, uh, Dragon Mount. Um, And then he also has come up several times uh, whenever we've heard legends or tales of the age of legends and we've heard about the breaking of the world. It's often described as starting with Luz Theron, the dragon, right? So he was um, kind of the the hero of the light at the time, but then was somehow involved in all of the men falling and going mad. So that's kind of the detail we have at this point. Nothing too much beyond that has been revealed in, in this early stages. Well, and I mean, I so to pull in some bits from the last chapter and what I already said, it does feel like whatever Rand has been reborn as feels very much to be the dragon. And he was called Dragon Child, Dragon, Dragon, uh, Child of the Dragon, Child of the Dragon by the Green Man. And so all of that plus this new alien Rand plus the banner feels like, okay, he's about to rise into a position, a, a station. Uh, a, so um, all of that is starting to kind of collapse in. Um, I was trying a moment ago, if I looked spacey off into the sky, I was trying to remember this great grad school word. I think it's palimpsest, which is um, when they used to make paper, uh, they would take old paper and mash it and steam it and and make new paper. And so there are scholars who study the fragments of text that comes from that paper. And I okay. believe uh, that kind of text is a palimpsest. And that image was coming to mind here because there's all this talk about the age of heroes. It's like we're in this age where these fragments have all come together to build this new story. And I think the way in which this has um, constantly reminded us of deep time, but especially kind of here at the end, it's felt like it all collapsed. And so it it is deep time, but it is one time at the same time. Yeah. Um, so I, I feel as we talk a little bit about Rand and all this, it's like, yeah, all of this has now come to the surface and the age of heroes is going to be fully reborn um, in some way. Yeah, and I think it's interesting that you're talking about, you know, things that were uh, lost being reborn or things that are forgotten coming back, because this image of the dragon itself is it's always fascinating to me because I I work one block away from Chinatown here in Boston. I am Mm. constantly in Chinatown. And so the idea of all of these characters being completely unfamiliar with with what is very obviously a Chinese dragon that I see 80 (laughs) times a day 
when I decide to go out for lunch. I think that is is kind of interesting. We know, you know, from early chapters, the world of the Wheel of Time is, you know, to some degree forward or backward in time from our own. And so to think yeah. about this image that now is extremely common in many parts of the world being completely foreign and unknown to an entire generation of people, I think that fits really well with what we're talking about, the old coming back, but also mm. what we think of as present being completely lost. I think that that works really well in tandem between those two images. Yeah, I mean, I think I'm duty bound to blow up your spot because you sounded so cool talking about going into Chinatown for lunch. But listeners, he's cutting through Chinatown to get to Taco Bell. And that's <laughs> that's the literal truth. So uh, about 40 percent of the time. <laughs> uh, spoken at, from the man who found the Taco Bell like two months before it opened and was alerting you to its exact location. So so you could go there. Um Yes. And I think, you know, there's some amount of trying to suspend disbelief while also trying to map out what is Robert Jordan using an Eastern influence and appropriating it, not necessarily with a negative context. And what is like, again, if this is our world, then how have we lost such important symbols? Because, you know, absolutely primarily Chinese and Eastern, but, you know, uh, the serpent and time um, is yeah. part of Egyptian mythology and, and on and on and on. So so it's certainly kind of a, one of the the very much the the I guess would be Jungian um, symbols of the subconscious uh, that that affects us. Uh, and so how is it we've forgotten that? And again, is it the society forgot it or it's Robert Jordan's hoping we're not thinking about it so he can be like, and then it's a dragon, right? <laughs> so I, I'm not going to be able to talk, top a Jungian analysis. So <laughs> I suggest we go on to the last of the three objects, um, which I think is especially interesting because it's kind of two new pieces of mythology in one, right? We are both learning about the substance that these objects are made out of, what is called quendiar. Yes, the L's go wide for some reason. Um, <laughs> and then the other thing that we learn about is obviously the seals of the Dark One's prison itself, right? We've heard a few times um, people say, you know, the Dark One is sealed, but I don't think we've thought of that as a, a literal set of objects that we're sealing him. And so it's interesting to me both that we are getting this kind of brand new, you know, kind of object. It's like introducing the Deathly Hallows in the last page of mm. book six of Harry Potter. Um, but then there's also something very interesting about introducing the completely impenetrable subject or substance by giving an example of it being broken. That feels like an odd choice. So what was your mm. reaction to uh, the introduction of the seals? Um, did it work for you? I know you said you had to read it a couple of times before it really kind of sunk in. What do you think didn't quite work about that description? Well, and I want to just also add the detail. It is one of seven, right? It They say. That is um, correct. Yeah. So, so it i think what i struggled with was what you just pinpointed was it was like here's an impenetrable substance that's broken into to pieces already and it was confusing to me it is the first of the three presented chronologically i believe right? so yes and so it was like oh you know we've emptied this pool and there's these great relics and my mind immediately went to you know campbell when it's like okay they're going to hand you the thing you need to complete the quest and yeah and it was rocks. And I was like, oh, wait, what? And then it was like, oh, but unbreakable rocks wait, that are broken. Um, and so I think my final kind of landing place is that it obviously means that when we're talking about the dark 
side, for lack of a better term, like it's loose, it's out in the world and this is real and this is this is happening. Um, It's not their imagination and it's not a false dragon or or, uh, what have you. Um, But then I don't really know. Like, is it there as a warning just to let them know is, is like, was the seal solid underneath that Sadine and then the action of channeling it broke the seal? Uh, you know, I think my mind goes a few different places, but it seems to be more. Yeah. Look forward to book two to figure some of these things out. Yeah. And I think that's right. It's mostly there just to kind of key us into what we're going to be looking for in a future book. Um, the only other thing that I think is especially interesting about this is what you mentioned, you know, the fact that there is one of seven of them. If we're not a podcast, if we don't mention the symbology of there being seven seals, right? Yeah. Um, you know, this is a religious allegory thing i know it for a really fantastic ingmar bergman movie yeah Um, (laughs) same (laughs) uh, but you know i i think this is something robert jordan does really well is he takes you know little pieces of all sorts of iconography both eastern and western and puts Mm -hmm. them together i think it's just worth acknowledging you know we've got you know something very deeply eastern and something very deeply western buried underneath the eye of the world together and that just feels like exactly what robert jordan is trying to do to address your and readdress the kind of question you brought up of appropriation, right? He's like, yeah, yeah. but if you appropriate from everyone, isn't that <laughs> fine? Well, and my mind also goes to you pointed out the seven spokes on the wheel. So we have another seven prominently in the symbol of this this wheel. So yes. And uh I think I've had the seventh seal bookmarked in my canopy or maybe my HBO. It's on one of the streaming services right now. So okay. I'll get to it. I'll get, you know, it's one of those things you kind of have to see if you yeah. think of yourself as a film snob. So I bookmarked it whenever it popped up. And I'm like, yeah, when are you in the mood for Igmar Bergman? <laughs> yeah, I took a bunch of like French film and silent film classes. And then when I transferred colleges, somehow they counted and got me almost immediately a communication minor. So that's nice. where all of my weird film knowledge comes <laughs> from. Um, Unless you have anything else to say about the seal, I think that is pretty much what I had for chapter 52. Any last thoughts about um, the adventures at the eye of the world? I mean, I think it I think it's a Moraine quote. They have done what they came to do. Right. Or right. That's kind of the attitude here. It's like, yeah, it's all broken and it's terrible, but that's that's what we came to do. Like we had to do that. So, uh, yeah. Talk us through chapter 53. The wheel turns our last chapter oh i'll add some applause sound for that greg (laughs) don't worry about it um all right so the wheel turns begins uh when they awaken and it becomes apparent that the blight is already moving into what was once the green man's garden um there is very little left and even the tree of the green man itself is starting to brown and some of the leaves are falling off um they're about to leave when loyal decides that he is going to do something about this and he uh then practices uh the ability that he has described to us once or twice before he does some tree singing and it's described as Rand feeling like it takes minutes. And then when he looks up hours have passed when he looks at the position of the sun. Um, But once he does so it's clear that the blight has receded some and Loyal says that the blight will not have a green brother. And so I think that was just a really, um, you know, 
great moment for Loyal. Um, they then start making their way through the blight, and it immediately becomes apparent that what was once an extremely dangerous area is, as it's described in the text, quiet. There aren't a lot of creatures. The trees aren't reaching out for them. Um, once they make camp, Perrin asks why, and Moraine says, we've struck a great blow for the Dark One, which leads to a really wonderful moment where Matt is like, wait, how? Nothing happened. Um, after that, they make their way to Faldara. Ingtar is bummed out. He didn't get to fight at the battle. Um, and then we do get the reveal that Aegilmar, at least, and probably some of the others, saw that there was a man who was channeling at the battle. And so it becomes clear that while this is a victory for the light and everyone is thrilled, there are now people being kind of suspicious of channeling Um and obviously, Aglemar, I think a, a really interesting moment is just how distraught he is at the green man having passed. Um, mm -hmm. We then flash forward to seven days later. Um, everyone is still celebrating. The citizens have returned to the town. And Rand is training with the sword with Lan. Um, they have a discussion about whether or not he wants to be a blade master because he carries a blade master's blade. And Rand basically just says, I want to make my father proud. And then thinks to himself, I just want him to be my father. Um, mm -hmm. He then interacts with Egwene, who overhears that he is planning on leaving, and she tries to convince him to go to Tarvalon because everyone else is, um, but he is convinced that he is going to go somewhere, anywhere but Tarvalon and home, I believe is the way that he describes it. Um, we then get the rarest of things in this book or any book. We get a Moraine POV, and my mm -hmm. full notes for the Moraine POV read Bluestone. She's from the palace of Carrion, eavesdropping. The prophecies will be, be fulfilled. The dragon is reborn. And that is how we end the Eye of the World. So what were your thoughts on this last, as you say, it's like the episode 10 of an HBO show. Not a lot happens, <laughs> but it's really interesting somehow anyways. I'll go even a step further. It felt like, uh, you know, I think Stand By Me was the first movie that like freeze framed and has the paragraph pop up. That's like so and so went to Vietnam and was killed in action and whatever, you know, and so many movies have used that sense. But um, so it very much is like, OK, let's just shuffle these these people around. So, uh, you know, I don't really have anything to add, but I will say I also earmarked the loyal uh, marking the grave of the green man and his his phrase of the blight will not have him was was really nice and yeah. i i was struck by the fact that loyal joined our little fellowship so late and the green man we barely got to know and yet this little interaction is very moving and you know i found myself wanting to know more of all of that story and um you know i'm at least for now, I'm still running under the assumption that we're only moving forward in time. We will learn about history, but I don't think there's going to be a book set like, oh, here's the Green Man story from from, you know, 2000 years ago. So um, so I, I think it, it was kind of bittersweet in that way. I'm like, oh, this is really kind of excellent. And I'd, I'd like to know more about this. But um, uh, and then, yeah, it's like the last day of camp. Right. Yeah. I liked that the the blight was weekend. <laughs> My notes are so silly. Uh, blight weekend celebrations follow fellowship breaking up. So it's like, yeah, yep. it's it's kind of just, you know, let's just start everybody off on their their next way. And I assume we'll we'll meet them kind of already a couple steps down their different paths and journeys and see where each group kind of what what each group became who went with who and and things like that um 
Yeah. So I guess the big thing is the dragon is reborn. But as I already tipped my hand about it, it was like, oh, I think that's Rand from last chapter. And that's why he was the way he was. Yeah. So I actually suggest that we very oddly take this chapter in reverse order, because I think Mm -hmm. it's going to be physically impossible to talk about anything other than the prophecies will be (laughs) the prophecies will be fulfilled. The dragon is reborn until we talk about it. Um, So I actually want to think about why Moraine is saying that to herself in that moment, right? Because the sequence that we see leading up to it is a reveal that Moraine has been spying on Rand and Egwene in that conversation, right? She's using the blue stone that she normally has on her forehead to listen in on Rand and Egwene's conversation about where they're going. And so I think it's very interesting to me that it's not just that Moraine is realizing to herself the prophecies will be fulfilled, the dragon is reborn. It's not just that she's saying that, it's that she's saying it in reaction to that conversation with Rand and Egwene, right? And so I think that both lends credence to kind of what you're saying. It's definitely Rand that she's talking about, right? There's no other way she reacts to that conversation with that. Um, but I think the other thing that's interesting to note here um, is just how sure she is right it's not like Mm. we have read anything in the last chapter and a half that makes you go like oh well obviously she would know that (laughs) and so you know i think this is both a a a telling moment for where the story is going obviously but i think it also raises just as many questions as it answers right mostly about uh moraine and who she is and why she's involved in, in this particular story if you will um so jump in on any of that 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 kind of Yeah. Um, So my mind goes back to Campbell. um, And, you know, I think as anybody who survived a ninth grade English class can tell you the the adventures in Campbell start with a call to adventure and then almost uh, immediately a refusal of the call. So, you know, the the classic Star Wars Ben Kenobi says, come with me to uh, Alderaan. And Luke says, no, I got to go home and take care of the moisture farm. And so in Campbell language, that is refusal of the call is because the concerns of the everyday are too strong. The character is too locked into the life they have, right? Bilbo Baggins just loves his sofa so much, his easy chair by the fire and his his food. He doesn't want to go with Gandalf. He doesn't want to go. And so to me, I read this moment as Moraine was not entirely sure Rand had actually reached the point where his everyday concerns no longer held sway over him. And, you know, in the italics, we see that maybe they're not entirely gone. He still cares about Tam and so on. But I think she overhears this firm commitment to this new path and this new life. And I think both I I, I read it more as that rather than like he's setting Egwene aside, like nothing in that relationship, but just the way she can hear him talking about his choice. She knows like, okay, now that I have a willing participant, like it's it's just going to happen now. Um, the actual whispering, I just want to note, I recently had Return of the Jedi ruined for me because there's a moment when uh, Leia and Chewbacca arrive at Jabba's palace and Lando reveals himself. And so Princess Leia walks, or it's Chewbacca walks by him and then he pulls down his mask and it's like, he's been undercover there for months and somebody he knows finally shows up and he's just going to reveal his yep. full face at that moment. I mean, it, it's entirely for camera. So the fact that she's whispering out loud, 
feels to me like pulling down the mask. Like it's purely for us and we're supposed to feel it in a, a different way. <laughs> well, and that's what's so fascinating is you could literally just put it in italics. It's the only Moraine POV of mm. the book. It doesn't need to be out loud <laughs> at all. Um, but I think the other interesting detail in here that I think kind of ties into some of what you're describing is this is both, um, as you're saying, it's 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 an interesting moment for what she is saying and what she's reacting to and why. But I think it's also interesting for the little character detail that we get embedded within it, right? Because we learn where Moraine is from. She is from the uh, culture of Carrie-Anne. Um, Yes, annoyingly, that is how it is pronounced. The <laughs> H makes it turn into a word in Sylvan somehow. Um, and then the other thing we learn is that Moraine grew up in the royal palace. So I think this gives us a little bit of information a lot of the things that we've kind of assumed were I to die about her it's possible we're also just high status royal sort of upbringing um did that kind of key anything for you did it change your perception of her or was that just a detail that was thrown into the kind of real nugget if we have this kind of new legend of the dragon reborn we think rand is it is, is that kind of all that came out yeah it was kind of it was definitely set secondary to it but as as you were summarizing it and reminding me of of those moments the fact that that is the first power she learned is kind of the ultimate court intrigue definitely changes moraine for me um and and it wasn't so much as like she's high born or high class or anything like that as much as it's like oh she's uh, I mean, to use D and D, she's she's a rogue in right. addition to being a, a warrior in some ways, or she's more of a spellcaster. But but it's like, oh, she's got a set of powers that are hidden, definitely within the one power, and how those all interact, I think, remains to be developed over 12 more books or however many <laughs> absolutely i think this also actually puts an interesting uh spin on something that we had talked about way back in like chapter four or five um i think there was an interesting scene a couple of times early in the book where tom and moraine are kind of talking over the heads of like an entire village or all the boys and girls and they're kind of having a subtextual conversation that no one else is involved in i think it's interesting now to recognize that both of those those characters are very heavily steeped in court intrigue right at mm. the time we didn't know tom was a court bard and we didn't know that moraine grew up in a royal palace so now the fact that they speak the same kind of subtextual communication style language it makes a little more sense than it did in the early chapters and i appreciate when robert jordan does that gives you little hints of things like this that often i think you wouldn't pick up until a second or third read but that's why your book club and a podcast is here <laughs> there are benefits to this Absolutely. I just get to talk to you about Wheel of Time stuff <laughs> once a week. That's a pretty solid benefit. Um, I now, I think once we've kind of talked about the big reveal, unless you have any other kind of like predictions or speculations about Rand being the dragon, I suggest we jump back to the blight. Um, because I think a very interesting happen thing happens at the beginning of the group camping. Um, Moraine shows Nynaeve and Egwene how to set the magical ward around their campsite. She's still too weak to do it 
it herself. And so she's willing to trust the girls to take on that task. And I think this is the first time that we've seen either of those characters actually actively consciously channel, right? A couple of times they've maybe inadvertently touched the source, but this is the first time that either of them has intentionally done it. Um, I just think that's an interesting moment for those two characters. And maybe it colors a little bit how Egwene is thinking of her, you know, kind of destiny of going to the tower um mm. did, did that key anything for you or um was that just a, a moment that kind of got blown past um i think it it is a way to demonstrate that Egwene is just continuing on that path i mean mm. the the big shuffle and th- that was the final confrontation kind of makes it hard because you're like everything changed but it is like just a few hours later or the yeah. next morning um so it it does feel to me like it's just Robert Jordan like signposting like, hey, in case you thought suddenly everybody was just going to like worship Rand and follow him and do his bidding. Like, no, these characters still have their agenda and and are set on those paths. And, and that's where we're going to continue their story. Um, you know, I I still this is maybe just rude i still am shocked that Nynaeve is still in this story because it really <laughs> hasn't felt i mean there's been some fun moments but there it hasn't felt like she had a grand purpose yet and other than um, to make a sob for one yeah the true in, in that one good moment uh so yeah uh so it's it is a kind of open question to me it's like you know <laughs> <laughs> like if your or like your elementary school principal showed up and was like, "Hey, you're going to college now. Like, let's do this. Like, I'll go with you. Like, <laughs> oh my God, it's Mr. Feeney. I, there it is. Yeah. That's who it is. It's Mr. Feeney just Mr. continuing Feeney to, to follow yeah. the Boy Meets World cast. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> so I, 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 I'm. It's not that I don't want her to be here. I'm just skeptical because I still don't understand her purpose out of Two Rivers. Yeah, and I think that's interesting to think about as we're now moving forward in the story, right? I think Egwene has a very clear kind of trajectory and path as it feels like does Perrin with the wolf stuff. Uh, Matt doesn't seem to have like a rhyme or reason yet, but he at least has a reason to be going to Tarvalon to deal with dagger things. Rand has whatever his destiny is. I think you're right to identify Nynaeve as the odd character out, right? Mm. Um, The only other possible exception, I think, being Lan and whatever his deal is, he seems to be actively avoiding his destiny. Maybe that's why those two characters are great together. But Mm. um, I think that, I think you're exactly right to be highlighting all of the characters kind of have a clear trajectory except for her, which is both the most interesting place to be and also the one that's the least satisfying for the reader until we figure out what's going on with it. So um, I think that's definitely something to keep an eye on. Um, The other thing that I think is interesting kind of character-wise in this chapter is we come back to some of the characters in Faldara. Uh, We see Ingtar and we see Agelmar. And so I think the fact that they come back in this kind of, you know, denouement chapter, I think is a really good indication that we should be kind of paying attention to them. They'll probably be back at later points in the story. Um, So did either of those two characters stand out to you? I personally just love Inktar being so, so sad that he couldn't potentially die in the battle. I think that is just a wonderful portrait of that character. Uh, Did anything stand out to you in the Faldara scenes? Um, This is the the Aowen and I forget the the dude's name uh the but they're the riders of Rohan where it's yeah. like oh 
now that we're in book two, let's add a whole nother society here and make you learn all about them and what's going on with them. It just, I agree with you. It felt like, okay, uh, we're going to be joining this and we're going to be a part of this. And, um, you know, it, it starts to be a bit staggering to think of like, oh, plus all the Royals we left with Loghain plus, plus, you know, these people, the, the head of Faldara plus these, these kind of nobles, um, and just on and on and on and on. And you've already tipped your hand that like the small farmer's daughter mattered. So it's like, oh my God, all these people matter, I think. And it's staggering. 900 plus named characters. Oh my God. And here's the thing. (laughs) That's a ridiculously small number for how big this series is. (laughs) Oh, well, and, and, you know, as much as I I joke and, and, and staggering is apt for my emotion, but staggering is not a negative emotion right yeah. it's it's awe-inspiring right that that's going to do that and it's just shocking that we're going to have that you know uh the silly point i i was going to make tonight is that when we got to the back of the book it's like oh there's a glossary back here um <laughs> i will in future uh you know uh books try to make better use of the glossary and i especially want to you know um you have obviously helped me a lot with tracking like some of the references to the ages of heroes. And it's like, okay, next time they throw in one of these names, I'm going to throw to the back and check and see how, how I've heard of them before or haven't, or I'll continue to ask you because you're not going anywhere. Yeah, I will (laughs) say, and this is a weird thing to note, but I should note it every once in a while. If you care about when information is given, the glossary can be slightly spoilery until Mm. like 300 pages in or so new characters that get introduced often. Some of their details get given in the glossary before you would know them other than that like it's not huge issues i think there's only one time there's a big plot detail that is given away in the glossary but other than that pretty straightforward that's like book 11 no book 13 you'll be fine (laughs) um so i don't really have a ton else in this chapter right i think we get an interesting scene of lan and rand uh sword fighting and practicing we get that lovely moment of rand you know want, wishing that tam was his father but that's the chapter for me as far as kind of big plot and character moments was there anything else that jumped out to you here um only that the title made me sing in my head uh uh, is it the birds? There is a season. Turn, turn, turn. You, come on, from the Forrest Gump soundtrack? I, I'm sure it's it. in some movie that I've seen. Yeah, The old hippie song. Uh, well, and all I was going to say is that there's the lyric, all the leaves are brown and the sky is gray. And you just about exactly said that in your summary. So I thought your head was in the same place. And now I'm just mystified that you were it channeling. All right, well, drop that in over the end credits uh, and lose our music license. So. Yeah, we'll just, you know, drop a $1,000 <laughs> on a needle drop. It'll be fine. Yeah, totally. Um, no, so, you know, I, I given that we've gone just about an hour, just shy of an hour, I, I don't know that we need to do a full debrief on all our feelings and emotions um, on on the book, right? Yeah. But I I will say, you know, um, I, other than you and like, we didn't meet through this book. And so a lot of the other people who I have encountered who have read these books are just like so deeply passionate about them. And and you fall in that category. I just didn't know 
this about you for a long time. Um, but it there's a way in which when you encounter people with that deep passion, it kind of turns you off a little. And, and I don't mean that negatively to those people. I'm like worried some people are listening and be like, that jerk is calling me a jerk. It's just like, it's, it's almost like, well, I'll never be as good as them at this. And so I don't want to try, right? Like if you saw them nail a tennis serve or something. Um, and so I think I, you know, when you asked me to do this, I I had some trepidation because I'm like, well, people are like really hardcore about these books, present company included. Um, and so I will say at the end of the first book, I'm kind of like, that was a solid fantasy book, but I don't quite yet understand what inspires that passion. And yet, because I respect the people who I know, including you, uh, dang, I got this far in and now I said I respected you. Darn, that was your plan oh. this whole time. <laughs> okay, we can quit the podcast now. Mission accomplished, guys. Um, so it just, it makes me excited and curious because it's like, okay, I've had a good taste, a good bite of the apple, uh, you know, not like percentage wise, but a, a yep. solid amount of time in this world. And while I'm curious and excited to see what happens, I don't think I yet feel any kind of burning passion. I am excited to keep reading, but I, if I couldn't, if they wasn't out for 10 years, I wouldn't like lose any sleep. <laughs> so this is actually something I just suggest we go 30 minutes long tonight. Like, I don't care. It's the end <laughs> of the book. Let's deal with it. Um, this was actually the first thing I was going to say. I know you are someone who uses like letterboxed and whatever the beer version of that was and things untapped. Like yeah. yeah. That one. <laughs> um, I am someone who I relate to things when I try to understand what I think about them and feel about them. A lot of times I have a hard time with numbers because I am so mm. quantitative. I overthink it. For me, rankings are really helpful, right? Mm. And so I would love as we kind of work our way through the series to be thinking, you know, what I usually do is I'm like, okay, is this my favorite? Is it my second favorite, right? Now, for you at this point, this is a worthless question, <laughs> right? This book is one out of one. Sure. Um, Given your trepidation and given that we have now finished this book, I have now I can let this off my chest. This book is 15 out of 15. <laughs> um, so that that links up with what I was just saying almost yeah, exactly. Then. It, it is a it is a fine book. I enjoy it. I'm glad it exists. It builds the world. But yeah, it's solid like B, maybe B plus fantasy. There's nothing that would make me say this is the thing I want and love and want to get tattooed on my body, but mm -hmm. it sets the table for it. That's why I love it. But um, I would say, I think I've seen, you know, like community rankings, things like that. I'd say this book probably typically more lives in the like 11, 12 territory. It's not regarded mm -hmm. as one of the best books, but I think I'm slightly out of the norm for calling it my least favorite, but um, it's definitely not regarded as like one of the great wheel of time books that people point to as the one. Um, and I guess if I read rank at 15 out of 15 i can at least promise you i think the next one's better <laughs> oh so there's that well and and we've had this ongoing joke about how i started being like i don't read fantasy and then slowly realized just how much fantasy i read and i think what it comes down to in my head is pure numbers like yeah. percentage wise in my reading um fantasy is is low probably maybe 15% we've discovered um i uh, listeners i read voraciously so, so um <laughs> um so i think that's part of where my kind of uh 
confusion about that point was in my mind. And and then I've kind of like, oh yeah, I've read this one and this one and this one. And and it's it's a lot. I mean, it's not, it's yeah. certainly not all the grandmasters of fantasy, but I I will say, um as unfair as that may be, I think probably I would put this somewhere low on that spectrum too. Um I'm I'm trying to be careful. You know, something like the new Marlon James uh uh, Black yeah. Leopard, Red Witch. I got that title wrong, but those are the two titles mixed together. Yeah. That those were so dense for fantasy. I had so much trouble that I would put those a little below, and and they were rewarding, and I enjoyed them. But but this would be a little higher than that. But I I think for me something like um the King Killer Chronicles, yeah, like um that was one of those books where I just couldn't put it down, and then I couldn't put down the second one, and then I just sit and wait and wait and wait for the third one. Uh, yeah. I heard it's coming out in 2020, gang. Don't worry. He he used the pandemic to finish it and and get there. Um, so uh, so I might put it below King Killer, but uh, I would say above Game of Thrones for me. I was yeah. I was on a group Zoom last night that took a 15 minute detour into just how great Game of Thrones is. I'm like, I think I'm on the wrong Zoom call. <laughs> like, I yeah. I just it that one doesn't work for me. The the show had its moment and it was fun, but the books aren't that great. I think you know our mutual friend Adam. Um, when I got into Game of Thrones, he'd already read it like a decade before, and he's like, yep. "Yeah, it's fine. I don't understand why the whole world is going nuts over it all of a sudden. It's it's fine." So I I do want to put Eye of the World above those books for me. Um, in terms of where I'm at at the moment and, and see where, like you said, let's check in at the end of every book and see if that changes a little bit. Yeah. I think that is kind of my plan. I have two more things that I want to do at the end of every book, one of which might take just a little bit of time, but let's put in the effort. Um, okay. <laughs> so number two, um, I have a game that I would like to play with you at the oh, end no. of every book. Um, <laughs> this is going to be, I think, a fairly straightforward game in this book that is going to get much more difficult as the books go on. So just be aware you're doing easy mode. Um, okay. So there is a wonderful website that you are not allowed to go on because it is full of spoilers. Um, that is part of the Wheel of Time fandom site where they do a statistical analysis of the Wheel of Time books, where they break down all of the chapters by POV and by word count. And crucially, at the end of every book, they allow me to sort all of the POVs by the percentage mm. of word count that they are in the book. In the eye of the world, there are a total of six POV characters. Can you hmm. give them to me in order from most appearances to least appearances? Oh, you had to put the order question. Well, the first one is absolutely simple. It's Rand uh, at the top. Any thoughts or any guesses on what percentage of the word count of this book he is? 75%. 79%. Ah, right. I'll give you That's credit not for bad. That. That's, That's not bad. That's not bad. All right. Uh, I will say... Of the Wheel of Time books I checked, there are only three where one character gets more than 50%, and this is the highest of the series. So we will not have quite as much Rand-centricness going forward. Mm. Okay, who do you think is number two on the list? Hmm. I would guess... I'm going to go Perrin. That is correct. Perrin yeah. is the only other character who cracks double digits with 12.6%. Mm. And it's funny because some of those felt really long, but uh, that number, I mean, the number's obviously accurate, but that feels right in, at the end of it because time passed, but 
not in all the ways we might expect. So yeah, yeah. and it, it's worth noting, even with Rand getting so many full chapters, Rand has forty-four POVs to Perrin's eight. So it's definitely <laughs> a, a pretty big gap in this book. Um, who do you think is number three? Let's see. Now I'm more the struggle is who else had POV? Yeah. <laughs> All right. So, so we had the breaking into the three groups. So Rand was with Matt. Um, and then, um, Perrin was with Egwene. And so the third grouping, it was Nynaeve who got the POV. So I would guess she would be third. That is correct. Despite only having three POVs in the book, mm. comprising 3.7%, Nynaeve is number three. Um, it is worth noting the remaining three characters each only had a single POV. So Moraine has to be the smallest. Yeah, Moraine is dead last 004 For that one paragraph. Of the book. Uh, she okay. actually is less of the book than quote, which is 0.08%. Mm. Um, and so two two more it's... they're both prologues oh um all right so the the um the guy who's banner <laughs> I, I put my notebook down the who's there in telemon the dragon yep. yes okay uh, he is actually below the next one he would be number five so we're missing the number four pov which would be from the like muppet babies prologue and uh, who was the narrator of the Muppet Babies? It was, was it Tam? It no. was Egwene. Egwene, really? Yes. Oh, okay. Yeah, all nice. the way back before you even knew who Egwene was. Um, <laughs> somehow, uh, it's worth noting that prologue is only 0.4% of the book shorter than all of Nynaeve's chapters combined. Wow. Uh, so uh, that was the easy mode of this game. You absolutely nailed it. Get ready for like three books from yeah. now. And I'm like, there are 27 <laughs> characters who had POVs. Oh, uh, man. Last thing I wanted to do, which I will need okay. to flip back in my notes, but I think that one of my favorite things about these books is getting to recognize when prophecies have been fulfilled or when images mm. that we've been waiting for have kind of shown up. So I would love, if you don't mind, to implement what I am referring to as prophecy watch, where okay. at the end of every book, we basically say, here is what is resolved in this book here is what is yet unresolved let's think about kind of what is coming and what has already come does that sort of make sense sounds um, great so at this point i believe we only have two categories of things to look at right so i'd say in theory we'd be looking for three at this point right so one is we've got min's visions we need to make sure we're keeping track of which of those have shown up and which haven't Second, we would be looking for any prophecies. Um, I think I've only got one in my notes that we have to resolve so far. And then the last thing that we would potentially worry about is foretellings. And we've heard one of those, but the only one we've heard is so vague that it doesn't super bear too much discussion. We'll talk about it, but I don't think we have a ton to super say there. But we'll talk about those, I think, after every book, if that seems a reasonable plan to you, co-host, who has not been consulted on this at all. Yeah, it sounds fine. <laughs> Excellent. Um, in that case, I would like to hop back all the way in my notes to chapter 15, Strangers and Friends, so we can chat our way through Min's visions. Okay, so Min saw around Lan seven ruined towers. 
I am willing to call that vision resolved. We now know his relationship to the Seven Towers. No need to carry that over. Um, we also, around Lan, saw a babe in a cradle holding a sword. We've also got the background on that. Lan, as a child, was taken with his ancestral sword out of his homeland. We have now seen all of Lan's min's, min visions. We understand them. We're feeling pretty good about it. Okay. Next up, Tom. A man juggling fire, but not him. As far hmm. as I am aware, not yet resolved. Something we should be keeping an eye on going forward. Um, the other was just the White Tower. And so it's possible that that was in some way relating to Tom and his nephew, but usually Min's visions are of the future rather than the past. So it seems unlikely that that would be that. Um, those are two relatively minor characters who had a couple visions each. I want to toss to you and just say, when we got these visions, obviously none of them had been resolved. I'm curious whether any of the things I'm mentioning kind of have more, you have more to say about them now that we've seen them resolved. Um, and then we can jump into a couple of the other characters who have had some visions. Uh, nothing to say about Tom, but lands certainly a kind of tip of the iceberg scenario. It's like the smallest hint of what is actually like a giant revelation. Um, so that makes me think as we look at these visions of men that we need to realize it's going to be just the smallest sliver of the pattern. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Heron, I think, is next. So the first vision, I'm pretty sure we can call resolved. Uh, there was a wolf. Um, Done. Check. <laughs> second, a broken crown. I don't think we've gotten anything related to that. And the final is a uh, field of trees flowering. Hmm. Still an unresolved vision. Um, Matt, we have a red eagle, an eye on a scale, a dagger with a ruby. I think we can say check. We we got that yep. one resolved. A horn. We now mm -hmm. potentially have a horn, but it's <laughs> worth noting that things related to Matt somehow in a way mm. that we weren't aware of. And then finally, a laughing face. Nothing there that we can tell so far. Um, anything for either uh, Perrin or Matt? Um, anything in those visions that jumps out Matt? at you? Or... Oh, go ahead. Sorry, Matt did reveal his identity to Baalzaman, right? Yes, he correct. said he that figurine's me or whatever. And so did Baalzaman laugh? That would be my only question of your interpretation if if maybe that's supposed to be like his reaction to Matt's kind of boneheaded move. But you that know. is possible, definitely. Um, okay, and then the last character to get visions is Rand, and he has quite a few. Um, so the first is a sword that isn't a sword. The second is a crown of golden laurels. A beggar's staff. Uh, Rand pouring water onto sand. Uh, a bloody handprint. Hot irons. Three women standing over his funeral pyre. Uh, black rock wet with blood and lightning. So that's a lot of imagery. I don't think 
any of those jump out to me as being resolved. Um, is there anything now that we have gotten some hints at Rand's future and Rand's destiny from what Moraine said and from the fact that he can channel, do any of those images, is there anything that has any new resonance for you or anything that's changed about the way you think of any of these things? Uh, beggar staff immediately made me think he's going to, you're a wizard, Harry, right? He's going to get a wizard staff at some point. Uh, three women over the pyre actually made me think of the Bible and uh, Mary and Mary uh, at the empty tomb. So it makes me think his mom, Nynaeve and Egwene over his funeral pyre, um, or maybe he gets a wife at some point or something, like, but of, of who we know at the moment. Um and I guess I just like irresponsibly speculated that his mom's still alive and, and around and ready to go. But I mean, that kind of fits this type of story and mythology. Yeah. Uh, and then the only other one was you said sword. That's not a sword. And you were cleared that when I was like, it's the Heron sword. You're like, nope, it's very clearly just a light sword, uh, yeah. not not the Heron sword. So that is um, true. Yeah. Yeah. So that just resonates with that, that it's a sword that's not a sword. Yeah, so absolutely. And that's maybe something we should know is I don't know whether we would call that prophecy fulfilled, but maybe we should be keying in on the fact that Rand now has the ability to summon a sword that isn't a sword, mm -hmm. given that that's something that's been explicitly called out for that character. I think that's definitely a really good reference that I hadn't, oh, hadn't made and, that um, connection. And lightning in that same category. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, he, he called lightning. lightning. Yeah. Yeah, and I will say, I think there is definitely an argument to be made. I forget the exact phrasing, but when Min is describing the lightning, it definitely keyed to me as being her giving a description of channeling or lightning as a weapon. So I definitely think that that fits, maybe not a full fulfillment of the prophecy, but probably was kind of some foreshadowing or a hint at Rand's ability to channel. Absolutely. Um, so I think keeping all of those min mm. visions in mind going forward, I have a notebook that I keep all of my when will these things finally pay offs in. <laughs> and so I jotted all of those down last night. Um, the only other thing that I would put in our category. Um, so we said min visions. Um, the second thing we said was foretellings. But I think the only foretelling we have at this point is Elida's foretelling that Andor was going to be in trouble and Rand would be at the center of of it and that feels a little too general to do anything other than Rand has a vision as a future um but the last thing that I wanted to mention uh was prophecies um and so we do have one prophecy that Tom mentioned early in the book um, about the Stone of Tear. And so Tom gave this prophecy that the Stone of Tear could not fall until the dragon took a sword, but the sword couldn't be taken until the uh, place fell to the people of the dragon. And so that's just an interesting um, kind of uh prophecy um, and as we go forward obviously we expect to be gathering more i just want to keep us on prophecy watch as we go forward um obviously now that we have heard the phrase people of the dragon and know that rand is potentially the dragon i'm curious whether you had remembered that prophecy or what it kind of says to you or any thoughts you have about it going forward now uh, I had not remembered that one until you said it out loud, but it does also just the wording of it, the structure of it is a snake eating its own tail, right? It's, it's you know, keeping both intention at the same moment. So, um, yeah, I feel like that one we are guaranteed to see come to fruition at some point. 
Absolutely. Um, I think those were the only things that I had for kind of end of the book wrap up moments. And was there anything that you also wanted to do? I know a couple of weeks ago, I remember you saying you had questions for me in several weeks. I didn't know if there was oh, anything gosh. you wanted to add or <laughs> um, if we just want to kind of make our way out of the season. Somehow. Yeah, that must have been a COVID fever. I don't remember okay. any of those <laughs> questions that I, I had asked. I mean, I think I think my only kind of area my mind has been tonight that we haven't touched upon is I I still wonder how the pacing of these books is going to go. Um, I don't, I think this covered about what I expected it to, um, meaning, you know, it was kind of like a fellowship of the ring amount of time type of type of fantasy book. Yeah. And so I still wonder from my very first initial hypotheses, like, is this going to be a multi-generational thing? Um, I don't, think this is a spoiler you care about at least but i will say um a recent movie that maybe came out this weekend starring some creatures that are blue made it very clear that the vision of this universe is going to be multi-generational and so that was kind of on my mind thinking about these uh these books is it's like you know i i kind of wanted something sprawling and like here's a hundred years of history Certainly after this book, I think that's less likely. I feel like this is the tale of this group of people and and it will resolve them. But I, I still leave a little part of that up in the air because, you know, just the next book could be 10 years later, right? It, right. I, I have no idea till I open it up. I mean, I assume not, but you don't know until, until you're there. So I think that maybe is part of where my mind was and just thinking like how this is structured, like you were saying. Like I have, I have a bit of that quantitative mind where it's like, I want to know like how, how much we progress and all those types of things. So I'm curious and I'm excited. And, you know, um, uh, I think as we, you know, we, we dropped these episodes, uh, specifically so people could, could do it at their own time over their, their downtime between Christmas and new year's. And, um, I'm hopeful that, you know, when we, we all get back together in January, we can kind of just keep plowing right through because i definitely want to know what's happening and and i will be sad if if we end up taking a a longer break than a week or two ourselves as we we keep going uh well i'm going to insist that we do not do that i was planning on forcing you to record multiple times a week (laughs) until we're done with winter break um but i think it's that's I think that's the sort of enthusiasm that I hope people have. And I will say, um, we talked earlier about kind of, this is not my favorite Wheel of Time book. Boy, (laughs) is it not my favorite Wheel of Time book. There's so much Rand in this Wheel of Time book. (laughs) Uh, But I think that that idea that this is not the ideal book, like you were saying, it's, you know, not your favorite, you know, intro fantasy book you've read. You're not yet kind of on the hype train the way that people get. Um, The advice I often give to people is if you finish the first book and think it's good, not great, keep reading. If you finish the second book and are thinking it's good, not great, keep reading. If you finish the third book, you should probably be thinking maybe great, not just good, but we're okay. (laughs) Book four is your off ramp. Right. If if you're going to like soft commit, I want to keep going, but I'm not sure I want to commit to 14 more books. I totally understand it. I respect it. Give yourself one book at a time until four. If you're not sucked in by then, you're good. I give you permission to quit our podcast after four seasons. (laughs) But 
I, I really do think this is definitely a, a series, as you're saying, when there's so much book to work with, pacing becomes really interesting, right? How much mm. do you do in one book when one book is only one fourteenth of the series? And so yeah. that's something Robert Jordan, I think, manages really well. And hopefully as we start moving forward on January 11th with the prologue and first chapter of The Great Hunt, um, we will have an opportunity to kind of see what that pacing looks like and hopefully kind of give you know assuage some of those fears that you're having greg like regardless of what the answer <laughs> is having an answer can be really valuable in these situations so this is the end of our first season of this podcast i want to leave you as the wheel of time novice to take us out of it um what are your kind of last impressions on a uh, first trip through the first book of the series uh i still want to know what the title of our podcast means uh, uh but as 2024 22 oh great great <laughs> uh so as the outro will continue to say i don't get to know that yet um but uh yeah what what a journey and what a trip and and you know there's always a feeling at the end of a book and especially at the end of a thick book it's like yeah i've i've accomplished something i've done something and you know i'm i made the joke the other day on social media that you know i was like oh i've read more pages this year and seen more movies than any other year in my past and that's what life's about and like friends and family or whatever uh but like i do feel like there's such great love uh in so many of us for good stories and that stories nourish us and they change us and they teach us and um you know more than anything stories bring us together and it's the silliest thing of all that we record alone in our basements talking to each other and building a community but it is a communal fire and it's you know the oldest of human activities done in in the high-tech way so whatever time you've allowed us to spend in your earbuds or your uh speaker as you wash dishes or walk your dog or uh vacuum and kind of miss some things but you're like oh okay they, they're not that interesting anyway uh we are grateful and we're thankful for for all of you um and when we return in january we'll have clear sense we hope of whether twitter still exists or whether uh what else is going on so that we can uh hear from more of you and hope Hopefully uh, start to get some some guest voicemails and other uh, pieces into this to, to celebrate the community more. So until then, dear listener, maybe more than one listener, uh, we'll, we'll see you through the glass columns. So ends another episode of Through the Glass Columns. We thank you for joining us and continuing with us on our quest to cover all of the Wheel of Time in our own sweet time. This podcast features original content developed by Tyler Orm and Greg Cass, and is not in any way affiliated with, associated with, or condoned by the Robert Jordan Estate, Tor Fantasy, or Amazon. All content is intended for entertainment and educational purposes only. If you're enjoying this podcast, please seek out the books from your local bookshop or library and join us as we continue our journey. If you'd like to contact us to share your thoughts or give feedback, you can email us at throughtheglasscolumns at gmail.com or find us on Instagram and Twitter by searching Through the Glass Columns. Thank you once again for being part of this community. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe to the show, leave us a review wherever you're listening, and recommend the show on your social media to help us grow our community. We look forward to to welcoming you back next time through the glass columns.